VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, November the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86 at 26. So here in this neck of the woods, pretty icy morning. Apparently going to be some blustery, windy, snowy conditions coming up. I don't hear a lot of good news about some of the road work that's being done, whether it be snow clearing or laying down a bit of salt. But anyway, regardless of the conditions, you've got to be safe out there today. All right, so as you know, I cuddled up yesterday afternoon to watch Canada play their first game at the FIFA World Cup of Soccer since 1986. And I was really excited going into it. And I think a lot of Canadians did take the opportunity to watch the game yesterday afternoon. So playing against the number two country in the world, Belgium. Boys played great. They really did. They played better than they thought they would. They, I thought they'd come out really nervous and really tight, but they didn't feel like that or look like that at all. They came out on the front foot. Unfortunately, we fall 1-0. I was really pleased to hear the head coach say, you know, they're proud of their performance, but they're disappointed. When you play that well against a side like Belgium, you hope for a better result. Now, they can certainly build on this when they take on Croatia Sunday at 12.30 Island time, but a couple of strange things in the game. I mean, we set up so many opportunities to score, but the finishing was dismal and guys like Jonathan David who we really rely on to score some goals he had a really rugged match didn't look that good to me and then when we had a penalty kick we've never scored the World Cup and our big star Alfonso Davies so as soon as the penalty was granted he picked up that ball stuffed it under his arm maybe it was a pre-match conversation about if we get a penalty you take it Alfonso even though he's not a striker maybe a good one for David to get off on the right foot but anyway Boys played great, really enjoyed it, and hopefully if you want to talk about soccer today, (laughs) I'm totally into it. Quick sports note. Today in 1982, Cal Ripken Jr. won the uh, Rookie of the Year in the American League. Went on, of course, this was part of going on to play 2,632 consecutive games. Just think about it. Playing pro sports, and the baseball season is long. He played every single game for over 16 seasons. Every single game over 16 seasons. Pretty cool. And maybe someone watched uh, Ripken play in the pub, but guarantee you there's been lots of soccer matches watched from the pubs in Ireland, or pardon me, in England and Wales. It was today back in 2005. They were granted the right to stay open 24 hours a day. Sticking with the Englishman for a second. Happy 81st birthday to Pete Best. You probably know who Pete Best is. He was the first drummer hired by the Beatles. Played their early gigs in Hamburg and in England. Later, of course, replaced by Ringo Starr. Uh, So Starr becomes one of the Fab Four. Pete Best, an afterthought. Side note, a footnote. Anyway, he's 81 today. We told you earlier the week about Claire Howe. She's from Paradise. She became the first woman to officiate a St. John's Junior Hockey League Junior B game. She's not alone, apparently. Apparently, one of her best friends, Leah Rideout from Clarenville, has also joined the ranks of the females to referee at the highest level that a woman has ever refereed in this particular province. So they first met at the Officiating Program of Excellence. They went to this uh, special training camp that was out in Gander. They met there, and they just clicked. They completed a kinesiology degree together at Memorial University. They even started working with the same company as part of their work terms. So they are joined at the hip, as they say. So both Leah and Claire have refereed in the St. John's Junior Hockey League. That's pretty great. I want to give a special shout-out to Ed Flood. 
When he was first elected to the uh, to HNL as referee in chief back in 2017, concentrating not only in keeping officials coming, because it becomes very difficult to want to be a minor hockey official given the behavior of some parents. So at the time, there were 68 women officiating hockey in the province when Mr. Flood stepped in. The number grew to 108 before the pandemic. That was about 18% of Hockey NL's total refereeing staff. Now they've lost some. They're back to 78, but good job on Mr. Flood to ensure that there's more, not only young officials, but of your obviously young female officials. So congratulations to Claire and to Leah. So as you heard Brian Medore say, there might be the potential for power outages today while Newfoundland Labrador Hydro tests the Labrador Island link again. We all know the painful history of that particular transmission line and the software associated with it. So today they're going to try to run at a higher than normal power level, 675 megawatts, to see whether or not the software is actually working. If there's a problem and there's a trip of the equipment, what they call an under-frequency load shedding event, you might see an outage. It might last as long as 30 minutes. A couple of questions. We know that power outage that we had last Monday. It was something to do with the maritime link. Now power was restored pretty quick, average of 16 minutes. But there was also two days last week where they were testing the Labrador Island link and warned us of potential power outages, but it didn't happen. Strange enough, we haven't heard an update from Hydro to deem them having been a success. I guess today is the big one with the big flow of power of 675 megawatts, but that might happen today. You want to talk about anything Nalcor, anything Hydro, the Auditor General's two different reports that have been tabled to frustrate the you-know-what out of all of us. We can take it on here today. Okay. Had an extensive conversation with Minister Seamus O'Regan yesterday regarding the fact that the federal government has taken the decision upon themselves to impose the federal carbon tax scheme here in this province come the 1st of July of next year. Lots of concern and consternation out there. Let's break it down a little bit more just so you know what your rebate may be and whether or not you even qualify for a rebate. So, if you have a single adult living in the home receive a quarterly payment of $164, an additional $82 if the second adult lives in the home. Households will also get $41 for each child who lives in the home, meaning a family four, of course, will get the maximum of $1,312 a year. And yes, it will not cover the increased costs that people will suffer here. And yes, no exemption coming for home heating fuels, which has left many really frustrated, and I completely understand it. When they talk about, you know, even some of the opportunities to stack different programs to move from oil to heat pumps, not to mini splits, to heat pumps, it feels good, sounds good, but how many people are actually going to be able to benefit from this either? They say it'll be eligible for up to $5,000 for low and median income households. So, the most recent numbers I can find. A median household has a household earning in and around the neighborhood of $74,000. And that's up from 2015, but it hasn't kept up the consumer price index, hasn't kept up the cost of living, hasn't kept up with inflation. So if your household earnings are in and around there, you may indeed qualify. But the rub, as we all understand, is even if I get upfront money and I can stack this particular plan with anything else, whether it be the Greener Homes plan, and you can indeed stack these plans, and that all sounds great, but the upfront cost is going to be well in excess of the monies that you're going to be able to get from governments. So there's two different pots of $250 million. And yes, long-term cost recovery is absolutely real, but it's whether or not you can actually manage it. 
You know, if you're struggling at this moment in time, paying utility bills and rent or your mortgage or your credit card or your cell phone bill, your insurance premiums, groceries, whatever, this sounds like pie in the sky for so many people living in the province. So opposition parties are crooked about it, as are the provincial governing liberals. They were trying to see an exemption offer to home heating fuels, but it is not happening. When it comes to considering moving from oil-fired to a heat pump, be careful not only to deal with accredited contractors with good reputations and background, but also be wary of the dates. Like the new portal for this program doesn't start till January. So you can start shopping around now. You can get an inspection done. You can get the quotes in hand. But make sure you do the work inside the timelines given by government. There was one specific circumstance that we posed in the form of a question to the minister yesterday. He didn't have a specific answer available, but... Be careful, even if you're just doing an assessment to see how close you can come, if you're even so inclined, to move off of oil to a heat pump. And be careful to know what heat pump really means and for the inspector to give you an, a real clear idea how it's going to work in your household, whether you have to up from a 100-amp service to 200, whatever the case may be, maybe the installation of electric baseboard heaters in addition to a heat pump. So just make sure you have all your I's dotted and T's crossed before you get into it. But if you want to take on the carbon tax, we can do it. Email completely blocked overnight. And all, just about all of it, about this new tax coming in the door. People understand a price on pollution. There's nobody out there who's pro-pollution. It's just whether or not, given the current economic realities, if it's the right time for home heating fuels in particular to be subjected to the carbon tax. About an extra 17 cents a liter when this is going to be imposed. You know, carbon taxes have been, well, it won a group of economists a Nobel Prize. It has indeed been that price pressure market solution offered by a variety of parties over the years. And so... Even if the opposition parties here say they're not directly opposed to a price on pollution, a carbon tax, they're questioning the timing. And yes, it's not going to be imposed this winter, and that's a line that the government leans on. And I suppose because of the willful scare tactics used by some to say, there, here comes the cold winter, this carbon tax is going to cause you to freeze. It comes into effect next summer, or July the 1st. But to remind those, including the minister and the liberal governance in Ottawa, winter will also come again next year. So, yeah, it might not be this winter, but there will be another winter coming in 2023. It will happen. And we know it to be true. You want to take it on? Let's do exactly that. Okay, so some good news on the prices of fuels. They're down across the board. Still whopping big prices that we're paying. Gas down about 2.7 cents. Diesel down 5 cents a liter. Sto- pardon me, furnace oil down just over 2 cents. Uh, that's after it dropped 8 cents over the weekend. Propane, modest to say the least, 0.6 cents. You want to take it on? Let's go. All right. So there's been lots of different pockets of money that have flowed from government over the last few years. And lots of Canadians have received some support. And those who felt they were left out of some of these support checks notably the quote-unquote mythical unicorn that is the middle class. So the government here, they budgeted aside some $194 million. And they're going to send out monies to some 392,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians via the mail. They say it was their low-cost option. Okay, I haven't seen anyone break that down for me, but so be it. The problem is, not everybody who is supposedly eligible for the check would have filed their taxes. People have moved. Now, there is an opportunity to contact the government, give them updated information. 
But unfortunately, without the updated records at the provincial government, I have at least a dozen reports of people receiving a check delivered to their home for someone who's dead. That's the sad news, that they've lost a loved one. But how many erroneously sent out checks will be sent to people who maybe don't live here anymore, have just simply moved, and or have deceased? So, I don't know. What would be the solution for it? Now, here's a number if you have a concern with your mailing address and or you were sent a check and you don't want to get in trouble by cashing it and hoping for the best, crossing your fingers that you don't get caught. Call the Tax Administration Division. It's 1-877-729-6376. And I'll have that on uh, my fingertips all day if you didn't get a chance to jot it down. Send them an email. It's taxadmin at gov.nl.ca. But now that the money has been budgeted, let's just say it adds up at the end of this six weeks, which is the length of time it's going to take to mail out all the checks, that we have pick a number. $10,000, and I don't know what it's going to be, $10,000 of checks that were sent to people who have passed along or passed away, pardon me, or for a variety of reasons, it, wasn't, it didn't get to the person it was supposed to get to. What should they do with the money? Back into the general coffers? Maybe. Throw it on the debt? Possibly. Or, given that it'll be right up against the Christmas season, maybe, just maybe, you know, spread the wealth to the folks who really do need it the most. And that would be the hundreds or thousands of people in the province who are having to go to a food bank. So that was an idea put forward by a listener yesterday. You want to take it on? Let's go. All right, let's move to education. High school students in the province haven't written a public exam since 2020. Of course, when the decision was made to not have public exams because of the fits and starts and the hybrid and they were learning from home, I understood it. Caveat, I'm not an educator or a researcher or have any big league knowledge in this world. But between the district and the province, you know, I saw someone offer a clarification yesterday that it wasn't the province that canceled public exams this year, it was the district. But between the fact that they're blending the district into the Department of Education, there's not a whole lot of light between the district and the province any longer, but the decision has been made. You can assign it to whoever you like. No publics again this year. They say it's part of the ongoing expanding its review of the K-12 system, which is interesting given the fact that when so many jurisdictions in the country reviewed their K-12 system regarding the learning loss because of the fits and starts in the hybrid and learning from home, they adjusted the curriculum for the reality of students in their province. As far as I can tell, we did not do that here, number one. Secondly, what's the review actually looking like? What are the specifics as to what they're looking at? Now, they're talking about coming up with innovative, uh, up-to-date systems of evaluating high school students. Okay, great. Things change. Processes change. They get modernized. Hopefully, they improve. You know, I I do kind of roll my eyes sometimes when the immediate reference is, well, at some point, they're going to leave high school and enter the real world. And yes, there's no question, when you arrive at post-secondary, there's less one-on-one time with your instructor or lecturer or professor. There's not the so-called hand-holding that might go on in the K-12 system. And yes, you will be tested. So where does the conversation begin and end? What does an innovative way to assess a student look like? And how does it dovetail with what will be the reality in post-secondary? A a really interesting question for me would be, for high school students who graduated since 2020, and let's say, for instance, doesn't matter where they went on to in post-secondary, but let's use Memorial University. How have they coped with what would be now a return to testing and exams? 
What's that been like for them? Have post-secondary institutions been involved in any of these conversations about, you know, what worries may indeed be associated with the lack of public examinations? Now, standardized, test, standardized testing is problematic anyway. But how does it all work? And what has it meant for the recent grads from high school when they went on to CNA, the Marine Institute, Keen, Mon, whatever? But I just wonder what the upsides and potential pitfalls will be. And yes, I don't pretend to know that there aren't better ways to assess or to evaluate a student, but what are they? And how does that look? How does it go hand in glove with the next stage of schooling if one young person decides to move on beyond grade 12 and do some more? Education, okay. Uh, okay. Encouraging story I read this morning about the moods in Port of Basque have been lifted. People are starting to, you know, latch onto the hope of the rebuild. We know some hundred homes uninhabitable, but since the province announced some of the details associated with compensation for losses, and people have not started to select new plots of land to build, to rebuild a home, or to, pardon me, to build a new home, so if you are indeed one of these folks out in the southwest coast, whether it is that the trauma of the events that was Fiona and or the encouragement with the compensation package that's been offered by the, pro by the province, still we see you, we hear you, we know that it's going to be a long time recovering on a variety of fronts, bricks and mortar and two-by-fours, and yes, the mental strain that it's brought to bear, but we're happy to take it on. Uh, interesting one. There has been a huge issue in trying to buy a new vehicle, right, for a thousand reasons. But this one here, if you are one of these folks who have to bring a vehicle in for some repairs and you're told that there's going to be a certain length of time between ordering the new part, getting the new part, installing the new part, and putting your car back on the road. This story comes from Ontario. This lady, she had a problem. She brought in her Hyundai, uh, her Tucson. She was told she had to wait eight months for the new part. It was an engine part. So that was all she could do. The part eventually arrived, and when she went to pick up the vehicle, she was handed a, a bill for over $7,000. The trick here was that the part they were ordering was part of a recall. It wasn't going to cost her anything. But because the vehicle had sat for so long, including through the cold months of the winter, all of a sudden they had to replace an O2 sensor, an intake manifold, a flex pipe, upstream O2 sensor, muffler, both rear brake calipers, rear brake pads, rear brake rotors, uh, both front brake calipers. Uh, on and down the line. She says, and other dealers in the area have backed it up, it was a direct result of that dealer just leaving that car to sit and freeze as opposed to starting it up every now and then, moving it around, you know, some of the things that can keep your brakes from seizing, the fundamentals. But yet, they're not taking any responsibility. So if you know your car is going to be sitting around, ask those questions. What happens if something else goes wrong? You've diagnosed my vehicle. We need this one particular part. Am I going to face similar circumstances when I come back? because it sat in the cold and it wasn't moved or started for weeks or months on end. So ask that question. There was another report coming from Ontario where someone had put their car in for uh, service at a dealer. Some nuisance came on the, uh, the parking lot of that dealer, stole the lat catalytic converter. The person comes back and they're charged for it. So just beware when you go in. Lots of good people doing good work in the car business around here, but just ask them those questions. What happens if my car deteriorates because of sitting in the cold while I wait for a part? No fault of my own, but anyway, thought that was a, a fair heads up to give out.
And the story that I also heard Medora talk about, 18-year-old fella out around Middle Gull Pond pulled over and, you know, we're always told, drive to the conditions. Yeah, not so much. Pulled over going 166 kilometers an hour. Car impounded. Good. Uh, man ticketed for excessive speeding. Driving while suspended. So he had a learner's permit that was suspended at the time. But 166 kilometers an hour. It's wintertime. And for your information, and you do it as you see fit, the province has reported three additional COVID-related deaths, bringing the total in the province to 273. Our condolences. Relatively stable numbers when we talk about deaths and hospitalization. A slight uptick in ho- hospitalization this week as they update the COVID hub on Wednesday. There's now 17 people in hospital. That's up from 13. Five in critical care. That's up from three last week. Just because we're sick of it doesn't mean it's done with us. Okay, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at vocm.com. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board on line number one. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. Hello? Hello? Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm perfect there this morning. Um, My name is Lisa, and I wanted to follow up on a story that CBC broke um, yesterday on Wednesday. They did a story on my sister, Denise, and it's about a living situation. My sister has um, an intellectual disability, cerebral palsy. She's legally blind. She has sleep apnea. She has grand mal seizures. The list goes on and on and on. So the need for for help is extensive. Um, we have a situation evolving where I, my mom passed away, and you just talked about COVID and how, um, you know, some people are, there's not as many. There's not as many being released, but my mom went in the hospital sick, died of COVID, but wasn't listed as a COVID death because she went for something else. But anyway, that's not what I called about. What I called was the situation we're facing with my sister, Denise. She has been living in our family home. She can't stay living in the family home. I have a solution. The home care worker who has been working with Denise for seven years has uh, graciously asked if she could, you know, take Denise, look after her, as long as she could afford to pay her bills. She's been working in this industry for seven years and being able to be independent. What the government are virtually asking her to do is cut her salary in half, take on more responsibility and not get paid for it. It doesn't work. We wanted a meeting, and I've been four months fighting to get a meeting. I have a meeting scheduled for this coming Friday. I'm not sure what will come of the meeting, if it's just something to shut me up. But I'm not going away. My sister needs help. I don't want her in a long-term care bed. I've been told by the social worker when my mom got sick that um, I asked what my options were for living accommodations if Denise had to go there. And they said, well, we don't want her in a long-term care bed because she wouldn't be safe there. And in lieu of everything going on in the news media the past few weeks, I totally agree. She's too vulnerable. She can do nothing for herself. Cognitively, she's about an 18-month-old. And putting her in a long-term care facility would be an endangerment to her. It would cost the government thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And we don't need to do that. She can live quite a happy life with the home care worker, with me, with our family, um, you know, participating together. And I don't understand why I'm fighting so hard. I think if Denise has to go to long-term care, if the home care worker quit tomorrow, she'd end up in an acute care bed in a hospital waiting for a placement. And if you get sick and you need that acute care bed, it's not available. Like, it's a huge, huge issue. And my plight is 
I, I started out saying it's about me and my sister and my family and the home care worker being able to provide this care. But the issue is so huge in our society. There are so many Denises out there. Years ago, sorry, Patty, but I just want to put this in. Years ago, when they enclosed Exxon House, they put all these kids out in the communities with the inclusion umbrella, saying they would be looked after by family, which was great. And they did it without getting paid. It was a struggle for most of the families. But those families are either aged out, sick, or dead. And the kids are not. They're still out in our society, and they need a lot of care. I'm familiar with the story. I read it, and, you know, there's no denying that this is not only a huge story for you and your family, but you're not alone. So they've developed a relationship. This home care worker was willing to welcome your sister into her home. But then, of course, the whole thing about who can be, who's qualified to be a primary caregiver. Because, obviously, if your sister's getting 16 hours of care a day, and one of those eight-hour shifts is done by this lady, I think her name is Miriam, right? Actually, I'm I'm going to I'm going to clarify all that because I think that's where the public is not understanding. Miriam has been with my sister Denise since my mom got sick in June. My mom passed in July. 24 hours a day, she is the one taking on the responsibility. So she actually works for the eight hours shift a day. She she was doing 24 hours a day for the month of June because we didn't have anybody helping out. So we've since found a person to relieve some of the stress that was there because I live four and a half hours away. I'm not available to do that. I've been back and forth costing fortune. But um, so we've found someone to do that. But she also does nights, and they pay her for nights. They pay her $34.60 for that eight-hour shift overnight. Now, some people may think Denise goes to bed and goes to sleep, and that's the end of it. That is not the end of it. She has to stay in the room with Denise because Denise could have grand mal seizures, which she does, two to three a night. She sits up because of sleep apnea. She can't be treated for sleep apnea because there's no way to keep the machines on her. And so someone has to cover her up, check on her, make sure she doesn't fall out of bed, break her neck, you know, uh, break an arm, break a leg, all of that stuff. So the overnight shift is quite extensive, and it's very difficult to do. I spent five days in there to relieve the home care worker to go spend some time with her family and uh, it was eye-opening I didn't sleep for the five days I was like I don't know how you do this and it was it was quite a lot of work to do that in the nighttime so she actually works a lot more hours she doesn't go to work at eight and get a break at four or get a lunch break or any of that she doesn't get any of that stuff when you work in this industry and of course so she's taken on the responsibility and she doesn't get paid for most of it Denise should be a 24-hour a day care person they are providing right now 16 hours a day plus overnight flat rate but the person who is responsible is that home care worker if the other home care worker gets sick the Miriam has to stay right so like there is a lot of responsibility it's not like you just walk away you don't if and, and once again if I misspeak here or get something wrong be sure to set me straight yeah so, I just want to clarify that because I don't think the public because even though CDC did a great job t- showing some of the story we interviewed for four hours both of us for that so it gives you a very small glimpse into the issue okay so the offer was made I think it reads something like this that the home care worker in the proposed setup would get about $2,500 a month tax-free about $30,000 a year which is peanuts and I wonder what it would cost and if the offer was rejected then your sister would end up in a personal care home if I read it correctly no not a personal care home in a long-term care bed 
it would be a long-term care bed. Okay. Personal care home, you have to be available to look after yourself somewhat. She okay. is not. I've done all the research. Okay. So at one at some point we're going to have to figure out this aging in place and home care and the comparative cost between whether it be a personal care bed and or in Denise's case a long-term care bed or an acute care bed guarantee you it costs more than $30,000 so I can tell I can tell you what it costs right now the research was done with Jim Dean's office because he's been instrumental in helping me do this and they did research on this and he said it's over $200,000 a year to keep her in a long-term care bed because of the extensive amount of um, care that she would require and it is nowhere near that to put her in a safe environment one that she knows because she's been with this home care worker for seven years she's not a new person Denise is not a new case she's been instrumental in Denise's life for a long time she knows when she has to go to the bathroom she knows the seizure issues she knows the feeding issues she knows the medication issues she knows her walking ability it is astronomical that this person look after her and keep her safe otherwise in all honesty this conversation will end in there's a death in the long-term care home due to whatever but my sister is not safe in a long-term care home i can guarantee you that so where are we exactly so we're told that if the deal is rejected it's right into long-term care so what's the deadline for this what's the date you're looking at that is a great question and that is one that we've been looking for because that was our question when we they came back with the offer because you have to realize what Marion has been working in, in home care, she gets paid a certain salary to do it. They want to cut the salary in half and increase the responsibility and have no break. So that doesn't work for anybody. And least of all, my sister, like I said to Marion, this is not just about you. Because if you can't afford to pay the mortgage or put food on your table or oil in your tank or heat or any of that, you'll call me and say, it's done and I can't do it any longer. Then I have to disrupt my sister's life, cause more turmoil that we've already been through. We've not done the grieving stages because we have not had time to do it with my mom's passing. So all of this is instrumental. I'm sorry I went off track, Patty. Ask me the question again. No, no that's okay. I was just wondering where the the deadline is for a final decision to well, be made. Well, there hasn't been a deadline because they came back and said, well, that's the final offer. And we said, well, the offer doesn't work, so what now? So what happens now is ultimately you do a social admission at the hospital, I am told. So you would take Denise, my sister, and say, like, I don't have the facility here to look after. I'm incapable of doing it myself. I know that very well uh, through issues of my own. So you would take her to the hospital and you would say, there's no one to care for her. She would end up in an acute care bed in a hospital and then someone in the hospital had to look after her. So you'd still need someone sitting by her 24 hours a day. They tell me it wouldn't happen. I said, well, she'd be dead or have her neck broke, one or the other. And you're gonna pay nurses and all the medical staff and take up all the resources to do that, to wait for a long-term care bed. As Henrika said in one of her articles, there are 418 people across Newfoundland and Labrador waiting for a long-term care bed. So she's not, it's not like you drop her off and they say, oh, welcome, thank you. Come mm-hmm. It doesn't work like that. No. And you also, also I've been told by somebody at long-term care who does placement and look after it that even if Denise were in a hospital waiting for a bed, they would place her, the person who passes for you to get that bed has to be of the same equivalency because the staff there would have to be able to look after Denise's needs. So it's not like you die and then someone takes your place. It's the person who's best suited to go into that place. Denise is very complex in her needs. 
It, I read the story, and I, I, I suppose I share the same concerns that not only you do, but most people listening to this story will. And if we have that number of people waiting for a long-term care bed, and if we know, and the numbers are there to consider, about the numbers of people in their senior years in this province, the forecasts of the numbers of people that will be living with dementia in this province around the country, are we planning? Because if not, the chaotic 11th hour is going to be not only more troublesome for individuals and families, it's going to cost way more, and yeah. we are fast-tracking towards that with all the data right there in front of us about the numbers. And hate to boil human beings down to numbers, but for the context of policy preparation and eventual cost, it does become a number. So I feel terrible for you and Denise and for Miriam and everyone involved here. I'm also going to bring something else up which has nothing to do with Denise as such, but has something to do with this situation that you're talking about. We are building a brand new mental hospital out there. Great. It's going to be wonderful. There is no facility in that hospital to put anybody who lives at the Waterford and has been there for over 40 years. There are people brought to my attention that are living there and they don't know what to do with it. There's meetings by meetings. What do we do when the Waterford closes? There are people there probably with bipolar schizophrenia, probably people there with intellectual disabilities, because when Exxon House clothes, that's where they put them. So what are we doing with those people? Are they going to a, a bed that if you get sick or your loved one and you're dying? That's what I'm saying to the public. This was about me. It's not about me. It's about all of us because if we get sick and our nurses are overwrought and run and exhausted from looking after all these people, and they're going to be because their needs are so complex, they don't have time to look after you. You'll die. Like the person in the emergency room I just heard on the news in New Brunswick died waiting for care because they're overwrought and overrun. This is a huge, huge issue, and it needs to be resolved. My sister needs to be safe. The person at long-term care told me the other day that, you know, there is a facility here in Placentia in, in the in, in the place that they have that for intellectually disabled, but they have to be able to be somewhat independent. They have, It's not a locked unit. Uh, my sister, if she was hungry, would eat something out of a garbage can if it was left there. She wouldn't know the difference. She said, well, that's a problem. You know, the doors are not locked. They're locked in that uh, you have to be buzzed in, but if you were there and went out, like Denise would walk out in front of a bus, she'd never know the difference. She said, well, most likely she'd be a candidate to go in an Alzheimer's unit that's a lockdown unit, but she doesn't have have Alzheimer's. She is an intellectual person with a disability who can cognitively live with a lot of supports, which she has had her entire life. And she should not and should never go into a facility where she's going to be left on her own accord, not going to be stimulated during the day. I mean, these people do the best they can, but they cannot do one-on-one care like she's been getting. Lisa, uh, let us know where this lands when you know more. Yeah, I, I will certainly do that, Patty time and I need all the support I can get out there. If there are people out there who understand my plight and want to help, by all means, because this is huge and I just want my sister safe and then I want to be able to settle back and take the proper time for us to heal from my mom's passing in July. Thank you for your time this morning. My condolences. Stay in touch. Thank you. Okay, Lisa. Bye-bye. And that story is not a one-off. I'm telling you, we really need to, you know, we'll, we talk about the complexities of, the, of today, the immediacy of the shortages and the concerns and the wait times. But looking down the road, we've got to be able to do that at the exact same time. The numbers are out there to consider. They are. They're everywhere you want to look. And are we actually doing anything to get out in front of these things? Because I get it. The minister's desk is probably 10 stacks deep of concerns today. 
But how do we incorporate dealing with those and looking down the road to prepare? Because if we're not prepared, you can bet your bottom dollar it'll cost 100 times more, and the chaos will put people into uh, spirals of despair. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Save the date. VOCM's dial carol Sunday, November 27th, 1 to 6 p.m. on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Bonavista. That's Craig Party. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Uh, listen to Lisa at the start. I said the system needs to be able to adapt when it makes sense for the individual and certainly when it makes sense for the system, the government. And, and that seems like a no-brainer, but time and time again, we don't see those issues resolved in the way they ought to be because it's not the way it was done in the past. And I think we've got to be able to adapt to those situations to uh, <laughs> to, to what makes sense. I really dislike going down the path of money when we're talking about personal and human circumstances like Lisa talked about, but ultimately it boils down to that. You know, I dislike the fact that we call patients clients and all those types of things, but 30000 or 200000 or how about this? We pay the woman what it takes to take care and offer a dignified, healthy, safe place for Denise Champion, pay her properly, as opposed to the $200,000 cost to put her somewhere where, as a vulnerable person, it's just not safe for her. Like, you know, I understand we can't do every single case by case and have all of these floating charts and just making willy-nilly decisions. But when circumstances dictate a different path, how we don't consider it and we just reject things out of hand and say, well, if you reject it, it's personal care home. Wait now, but that doesn't work for anybody, including Miriam, including Denise, including Lisa, including the system. Yep. It's a fair critique of the way we operate, and that's sad. Patty, I, I call in on uh, on the carbon tax, but I want to mention about the road conditions on the district of Bonavista just for a minute. On Tuesday, we had weather. We had um, uh, residents of Bonavista bringing uh, their family members up for medical appointments in Clarenville, which is often the case, or St. John's, and they had to turn around halfway up and back. Many that were traveling all day long, never seen a plow, first nor last, on 2.30 or 2.35. And the only thing I, was, I, I hear was that uh, they had some equipment malfunctions and some operational issues. Now, the first storm of the year that we had, and we had we had vehicles off the road, and the equipment not to be ready, I would hope that that is looked into and it doesn't repeat itself. It's a shame that we've had people on the road or couldn't make their appointments because, again, of the road conditions. People often say, follow a plow, but if there's no plow on the road, by you're, you're, in, uh, you're in a tough spot. So I would hope that doesn't repeat itself. And this is a, a district, Patty, where I phone in twice before where we talk about those destructive potholes. You know, Mr. Russell in CBS or Mr. Butt in Lethbridge that spent a whole lot of money on damages to their vehicle, no reimbursement, but those potholes still exist on some of our roadways, on our major roadway, like 235. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I just wanted to get that out there and hope that uh, that doesn't happen again and whatever the issue that uh, that they have there, that it's it's resolved. Patty, on your preamble, you mentioned, uh, and forgive me now because I only caught bits and pieces of it, you talked about the carbon tax. You mentioned if people out there now that can't manage now, how is this going to be different? It's not. And, and, and I can only speak for the residents of the District of Bonavista to know that they can't manage now. What what this is going to do, I don't think is going to give them any reprieve at all. You're going to add now, for those that are burning oil, you're going to add the uh, nearly 20 cents onto the per liter, and you're going to give the, the rebates back. A single person in a home, 
it's going to cost them more. And when they say eight, eight out of ten Canadians, well, listen, eight out of ten Canadians, those that don't, don't burn oil, there's a large percentage in the district of Bonavista who burn oil. There's a large percentage in the district of Bonavista who are um, either seniors or, or living um, by themselves in their own homes that can't make ends meet now. And it's it's an issue. One thing I did mention in the house a couple of times when they when they rolled out to five thousand dollars for um, you know for the the exchange unit or the heating unit, the the thing that is the problem is that they don't have the funds. And you mentioned that in your preamble. They, they don't have it. It was going to cost them a thousand dollars more than five thousand. And uh, Charles Pender story on VOCM would state that, and I know that's a unique circumstance, but it's certainly going to cost more than $1,000. And these people, many of the residents in the district of Bonavista, don't have the money in order to put in the uh, the heating unit. No, uh, it, and it's the heat pump is the specific sure. uh, unit that's yes. covered. Look, I mean, th- and that's why I didn't go straight down. A couple of emailers said, how come we didn't tell Charles Pender's story? Because in general terms, it's just if it's unmanageable, it doesn't matter if it's unmanageable by two, five, ten, or $20,000. If you can't do it, you can't do it. So, and that's going to be the circumstance here. And every home would be different. Every need would be different. That's why I just chose to go with the general terms of people ca- still can't afford it. Look, we we know that this is going to be problematic, and it's a little bit disingenuous to say, well, it doesn't happen this winter, but it's going to happen next winter, and we will have a winter next winter. So it's the then what question. So, like, even if it was more manageable, let's say if the average overrun beyond the 5,000 and or stack it with the 10,000 possibility out there for some, if that, to your point, means that it's 12,000 required up front, that's the end of the story for so many people that that's just it. I don't know what anyone expects people to do. If you're having a hard time with your utility bills, your rent, your mortgage, your cell phone bill, your insurance, your internet and everything, then where's that 2,000 coming from? Look, cost recovery is is excellent and it's fine. I, I installed a mini split. We really enjoy it. One of my buddies has a heat pump. He says cost recovery for him will be in the neighborhood of five to six years, but he's got the money to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cost recovery is a great uh, way to look at things if you've got the money, but cost recovery is irrelevant if you don't. Yeah, two things, Patty. I, I think of an individual now who lives by herself. Her mom passed away earlier this year in Bonavista. Uh, she gets $605 a month. That is her total income in that household. When she was living with her mother, they could manage to make ends meet. Right now, she is the only one in that home, and that is the income that that she gets. Now, we know what a a tank um, of oil costs and to be able to heat uh, the house and then to be able to manage as far as some some food, to travel around, don't have a vehicle. She can't make it. She can't do it. One suggestion I would think you often ask and throw out, well, what, will you, what, what can be done differently? Mm-hmm. Uh, let me throw this out. Newfoundland Labrador Housing on their home repair program, they can offer a loan. They can offer a, an interest-free or a low-interest loan that will stretch it out over a number of years to make it accommodable for those that uh, can't afford it or on, on uh, limited income. If it takes for this lady here to, for $8,000, and those $3,000 can be given in a loan stretched out over a number X number of years, so that she would pay, say, $100 a month, she may have savings in her house, energy efficiency, that may equate $300 a month. 
she can certainly pay a portion of those savings to pay off what the cost would be. But this is two programs that rolls out now that there is nothing attached for those people who can't afford the mini split or the or the heat pump. But now, in fairness, in the Greener Homes Grant, there is an opportunity to take out an interest-free loan over the course of 10 years to undertake these retrofits or renovations or new installs. So it's out there. But that also comes with the ongoing concern of, if I can't pay my bills today, then I can't take on a loan. Yes. So, you know, there is that's there. There is an interest-free loan opportunity for those who are deemed eligible through the Greener Homes Grant. But I'll give you the okay. last word before I have to move off to the, uh, to the break. Yep. So anyway, uh, Patty, I know here we are now, and I feel a little bit guilty talking about next year. You know, we're talking about next year to carbon tax coming in on July the 1st. But I would think that we've got so many people now in the district of Bonavista who can't make ends meet now. And it's an issue now, not only next winter, but it is it is an issue now. And I think that we uh, we often, whether it be crown lands or whether it be the fishery, we often think that we need a plan. Well, we do need a plan here in relation to those people that uh, find it so difficult within within our province. Sure. We need a plan. We, we can talk about today and tomorrow at the same time. That's right. I appreciate the time, Craig. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. All right. All the best. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Craig Friday's the PC member for Bonavista. Let's take a break. When we come back, the mayor of Whitburn, Hilda Whalen's in the queue to talk about the lack of appointments. For what? We'll find out. Don't go away. <laughs> Welcome back to the program. Let's go. I appreciate Mayor, uh, mayor Whalen's patience. She's going to wait for after the news so we don't shortchange her. Line five. Gerald, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, we have a dog uh, looking for a temporary home for six months. Where are you going for six months? We're going to Ecolvet tomorrow morning for a six-month contract. And uh, we had somebody lined up, but he backed out last night. I just called the SPCA, and they're unavailable today. They're, they're, I guess they're not open or they're not taking phone calls or whatever. It's a bigger dog. He's a crossbreed between a German Shepherd and a, a pit bull, but he's a house dog. He's very lovable. Like great around kids, protective and everything. Great around kids. You know, he, we're up in Trapassi here. He's, he's used to lots of freedom, but uh, but he's, he's you know he's more more of a house dog. He goes to the door when he wants to go outside and do his thing. He's done. He's neutered and everything. As she is, she's done. She's neutered. Pretty quick turnaround time for a big dog to find a six-month home. So are yeah. you willing to pay somebody to do it, for instance? Uh, yeah, I'd pay, I, I could pay something, yeah. I would pay something. Uh, I've got lots of dog food and all the, all the things. Yeah. I will provide the dog food and everything. We'll, we'll pay, you know, give, uh, give them something, yes. Okay, I'm just curious because, you know, that might entice somebody to take on the quick turnaround. What's the dog's name? Diesel. Diesel. <laughs> yeah, girl, but it's Diesel. That's what the kids call her. Funny. Okay. She's five years old. Okay. Great dog. Loves the water. Loves fetching. You know, your normal dog. Loves to pet it down. She, you're sitting on the couch. She's sitting on the floor alongside you. So it's one thing if someone who's willing to do it is in St. Mary's Bay, close by Trapassi, but let's say for some, uh, for instance, someone in my neck of the woods here in CBS or something who wants to do it, are you able to deliver the dog, deliver yes, diesel? we can deliver the dog, and that's the best part is with somebody back there last night, we're flying at 5.30 in the morning, tomorrow morning. Well, let's see how quick we can turn this around, if at all, uh, uh, Gerald. So what's your number if someone wants to call and speak to you about okay. diesel coming over? 725 7071. Good luck with it. Oh, actually, I didn't write the number down. Give it to me one more time. 725. Yeah. 7071. Okay, let's see what happens here. If anyone calls us, I'll be happy to pass along your number. 
Thanks very, very much. Thanks. Good luck, Gerald. All the best. And safe travels. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, do you want to take diesel in for six months? All the supplies will be provided. Maybe be able to negotiate a little weekly rate for your troubles or your service. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Appreciate your patience one more time, uh, Mayor Whalen out in Whitburn. And other than that, Dave, how are we doing on the telephone here this morning? All right, let's take that break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Mayor of Whitburn. That's Hilda Whalen. Mayor Whalen, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, usually when I, I'm not talking about health care, it's, it's advocating for health care as a whole on the province, as you know, affects us here, too. But uh, this has become a personal issue with me. I'm not one of those ones who lost their doctor. Uh, this has become a personal issue that is now uh, will and will be and is affecting others. Uh, I'll give you a short history. I had... Uh, cancer surgery i uh, i'm a survivor i'm well i had letters from uh, the 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 radiologist asking me to call over to carboneer you need physiotherapy i got a couple of letters i called over from nine to twelve and i kept calling i couldn't get it then i got a call from uh, uh the clinic actually it was someone who personally knew me and she said hilda why haven't you have your bone treatment and it's a treatment, something like chemo, it's to prevent me from getting a bone cancer because the type of cancer I had does that. And I says, well, I had a bone density test on girl. I said, it must have been good, so they're not doing it. No, no, Hilda, you have to have that for the rest of your life. Didn't they explain that? I said, yes, she said, let me check it out. So she came back to me. She said, Hilda, that prescription came in here. No doctor would accept it. This was five months later. I have to have it every six months. So I'm five months late. I said, oh, she said, well, let me call the cancer center. So she called the cancer center, and they got me over to Carboneer for the next day, actually, for my bone treatment. And while I was there, I said to her, I said, I need physiotherapy on this arm. I said, the contractions are like having a heart attack. Like She said, yes, I know. I said, I called over, I said, uh, to try to get the physio, but I can't seem to get an appointment. She said, there hasn't been a physiotherapist in this building for over a year. I, I said, what? I said, are you sure? Oh, yes, I'm, I'm sure. I said, so what do people like me do? She said, well, there's uh, one down the road, uh, uh, and I said, a therapist, and another one, I think, in the uh, Powell Center, she said, it costs $100 a day, or 80 to $100. Oh, well, I said, I guess I'll try somewhere else. So I, I called, uh, actually, I called Ron Johnson. He's the uh, uh, is an administrator for rural health, and I said, Ron, there got to be some place. He said, Try, try Pacentia. You might get in over there. So I went into. I actually, I had an appointment uh, last week with my my cancer doctor. She, nope, you're cancer free, Hilda. You're good to go. Your treatment, got your treatment. Yep, got my treatment, but I need physio. Yes, you need your physio. She said, Keep on that. I said, I'm trying to get in to uh, uh, Pacentia. So I called over to Pacentia last week, same thing, appointments all taken. So they started at 9 o'clock. So 9 o'clock this morning, two minutes after I'm on the line, appointments have been taken. 
So I'm assuming it's another uh, Carboneer issue. Now, I don't know about the rest of the province, but if you need physiotherapy, and I need it, you're not going to get it unless you're on workers' comp or insurance. Apparently, it has, to my mind, been privatized. And how many more is out there with the same? There are certainly lots of private uh, physio appointments out there. That's one thing for sure. And now most of them would probably be in bigger centers as well. So not so so sure where to point you there. So there has been a physiotherapist in that particular clinic you mentioned for over a year? Nope. That's that's the hospital in Carbonier. It's at the hospital. Okay. And uh, I'm calling the hospital in Pazentia, and I'm getting the same result. Hmm. So if I need physio in Eastern Health, I don't know about the rest of the province, then I'll go pay it $100 a day or do without it. So uh, to me, that is privatization. Well, it's certainly part of it. And, you know, we we applaud the fact that the country has universal health care. But, number one, it's not working like it's intended. And, two, there's more and more private offerings coming in. Now, some private offerings are perfectly fine. And they just actually are a complement to the system, but not all. Exactly. A complement. Not to, to put it there so that people with only with money or workers' comp or insurance, you know, look after the, the other people. Look after them in, in your system. Which is not happening. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sorry to hear it's happening to you because you wouldn't be alone, obviously, in your region, whether it be other residents of Whitburn or elsewhere. Uh, quick update, though, on what's going on at the, uh, I think, is it, is it the WR Newhook? Yeah, WH Newhook. WH Newhook. Uh, yeah. The, new, the clinic is the same as everywhere else. You know, with this health care, I, I have to uh, commend the, the premier for changing that rule with physicians and surgeons. That was a, a great barrier. Um, the incentives put in place, if that had been done 10 years ago, we wouldn't be in the mess we got. But the fact is, it's not enough. If I have a, a van settled anywhere in Canada, uh, and I'm not going to come here for the same as money, you got to offer more money. They say it's not about money, but it is. That's what will get the people in here. Yeah, I supp- that could be absolutely true, but of course it might not be for everybody. Because we've no. seen nurses, for instance, unwilling to move from the casual list to permanent full-time, even with $3,000 immediate sign bonus and other supports offered, because they say it's not about the money, they just don't want to live like their colleagues who are permanent full-time with the inability to refuse overtime. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where we go from here, but there's a full suite of incentives, there's lots of them dangled out there, how they're going to work, or if they will work, I guess it'll take time to figure out to measure whether or not they've been effective but the immediacy of the concern is for is for most people i mean because government policy they have to look at today and tomorrow and next year but for you you need a physio appointment today so that's that's the problem so is the emergency room still closed yes it is and and um i've been keeping my eye on this of course you know i've been advocating for it but uh it's just not going to happen unless, like the CEO, uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, the CEO and government, like they haven't been working together. In June, they lost 100 doctors, The uh, 43, was it, that they didn't uh, relicense because they weren't in for their license by January 1st. Uh, and I think it was 60 or so, whatever, didn't. Uh, didn't even uh, reapply for their license, probably went somewhere else. 
Um, and I asked uh, the, the college physicians myself, I said, did you inform CEO at uh, Eastern Health? No. They didn't know. The, C- the minister didn't know. So, I mean, there was a chance here to probably – you know, take back if you're going to get half of them. So it's a fact that they they don't think they've got to work together. I I I do agree with putting it under the minister's desk, uh, desk because it's got to be in a place where everything is inclusive. The college of the uh, North College of Physician Surgeons, the CEO, and the government—they all have to know what's going on. And I think it was uh, vast information that was allowing uh, Haggis stand up in in the house and say, "We don't have a crisis." Well, if you had to look a little further back, you would see it. And it was at a time when we're losing all this. This didn't happen overnight. Everyone. Like each individual uh, entity, could they weren't looking at the bleeding out, and it and it before it became this huge problem, and then of course that takes the the cover off of paramedics and nursing. We've all all know that nursing has been uh, uh, in crisis for years, and and there's no denial. Um, you know, like they're paying what a million and a half overtime because they don't part time don't want to go full time. Well, maybe if you fix the full time, they might go full time. So, it's it's just been such a, a mismanagement of 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 these entities that should be working together. Not sure that David Diamond, who was the head of Eastern Health, is the fellow to be heading it up in in, in government. But uh, there's got to be more money put on the table. And I told him, sell Gull Island, do what you like. You got to get the money. You got to put it on the table, and you got to start working together. And if it takes legislation to do that, then do it. We have a university in there that takes patients from from Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Thailand, China, God knows where, training these people, and they're leaving. I mean, we now need that university full. It will take 10 years for us to get in place what we need to properly care for our our whole province. Yeah, now some 65 out of 80 seats are are locally filled because we had 60, we picked up five that the province of uh, New Brunswick was unwilling to cover costs uh, going forward. So no argument about, you know, educating more locals, you know, even nurse practitioners. We graduate about 12 per year. Certainly we can do better on that front, or we Absolutely. should be able to. Uh, yeah, Hilda? Some, the, I, I called too, I did just one more mention. I did call and I was keeping check on the, the recruitment. I called in for Megan Hayes a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's on a month. Monday, and uh, I asked to speak to her. She said, she's in clinic today. I said, she's where? She said, yeah, she does clinic on Monday. I said, haven't we hit, I said, you guys yet that we need her seven days a week and seven more like her seven days a week? To date, Patty, we do not have one doctor placed. It's been eight months Oh, yes, I know. I follow along. Someone just sent me an email saying you might be able to see a physiotherapist in Bay Roberts, but, of course, Bay Roberts is not Whitburn either. Uh, no, Bay Roberts is the one that, that, that charges. That's the one. Oh, that's the, the closest $100. one. That's the $100 a day. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, Mayor Whalen, I appreciate the time. Good luck. All right. Take care. Thanks, All right. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Hilda Whalen is the mayor of Whitburn. Uh, who on to, Dave? Sorry, I couldn't hear you. Um, okay. Line number two. Rob, you're on the air. 
How are you doing today, Patty? I'm okay. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but oh. uh, I remember a caller came in on, I think it was on Tuesday, a gentleman, that had received a rebate check for his uh, deceased wife that has been deceased for over a year. Yep. And um, we just happened to have the same thing happen to us. Um, our mother, my mother-in-law passed away over a year and a half ago, and all of a sudden we get this rebate check. You just in my email inbox or on my social media feed, you're now about the 25th family to report the exact same thing. Yeah, so unbelievable. You know, it is unbelievable. You know, like it's obviously government not doing work. <laughs> you know, um, all this stuff should be passed on. Like I could understand if it was only a week ago it happened and something like that happened. But this is, you know, it's it's well over a year. And it just shouldn't be happening. So governments, you know, just willy-nilly and giving out money to people that who aren't even around. Yeah, it requires additional oversight and updating their records, no doubt about it. So have you called the tax administration number to tell them that it happened and to organize getting it back to them? Well, we've been trying to. <laughs> trying to get a hold of any government person is a, is a job and a half. It can be. I also have an email address for the exact same outfit, if that's easier. Um, okay, yeah, let me grab a pen here. Paper. It's a, it, right, it's, it's a real easy one. It's, it's tax admin, so T-A-X-A-D-M-I-N. M-I-N, okay. At gov.nl.ca. At gov.nl.ca. That's okay. right. That's perfect. Thanks a lot, Patty. But I just wanted to, you know, bring it up and let people know that it's that it's out there big time. Oh, it's happening, no doubt about it. Like I say, I've got at least twenty five since this time yesterday. Wicked. Yeah, it is pretty wicked. Uh thanks for this. All right then, Patty, have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Yeah, so what should be done with the numbers of checks that go out and someone has passed along or passed away? It's going to be a pretty big sum by the look of it. Okay, so we warned that there might be possible outages, and it has indeed happened. Around 10 o'clock, we were starting to get notices that everywhere between St. John's and Cornerbrook, widespread power outages. The hope is to have it reinstated within 30 minutes. I guess it depends how many customers have been without power now. But, of course, the implication here around where I live and work is the traffic lights are out. So most should understand how to navigate when the traffic lights are out, so they now become four-way stops. So just try to give yourself a reminder as you approach the next light or the absence of lights at an intersection, four-way stop. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, public exams in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Jeff, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I wanted to talk to you about the public exam issue. Okay. So, um, so far, the conversation has been about whether um, taking away the public exams is um, making youth unprepared for the pressures they may face in post-secondary education and, uh, and outside in the workforce. That's part of it, yeah. But for me, I see it as being um, losing a uh, measuring stick. So my understanding is public exams is standardized exam that's delivered throughout the region. Students from all across the province write them. They're then uh, collected and distributed to um, separate locations. So for instance, you could write a public in Cornerbrook, but someone in Central may correct it. And then the statistics are collected to see where, uh, where there may be dips in learning. And uh, so you can have a comparison of uh, objectives, learning objectives, to see who's scoring uh, within range, below range, or above range. Okay. 
so without public exams, now you have uh, a situation where schools become more insulated. And so the loss of learning then is not being um, recorded or tracked. That's one of the uh, pitfalls that I see by taking away the public exams. Well, uh, look, I'm not an educator, uh, married to one. My question would be, well, she's not in the high school system. My question is, okay, if we're not doing the standardized testing, and they're not perfect uh, as a standalone way to evaluate what a a student knows or does not know, but what are these new, innovative, out-of-the-box ideas for evaluation? How do they work? Are they consistent across the board? Do they mimic the sort of comparatives we get from a standardized test like a public exam? What are we doing? You know, And what kind of conversations are had between the district, the department, and post-secondary institutions about their thoughts on preparing high school students for the next step. So those are the two big ones for me. There may indeed be more modern, more effective ways to measure the potential or where a student is at, but what are they? I mean, I don't know if it's a big deal for me to be informed on it, but I bet you a lot of question, a lot of people are asking the exact same question. I agree. I think that this is just another um example of degradation in the system. Patty, I'm around your age, okay? Uh, to be fair, you're a little bit older. <laughs> no problem. But anyway, uh, that's, uh, when we grew up, I, I think you have, may have had similar experiences. Um, I'm just going to run down a couple of memories that I have grown up. When I was in junior high, we had a school band, and during a rally one time, the school band played uh, She Works Hard for the Money, complete with a sax solo. We put off a uh, big uh, school school uh, production uh, when I was in grade four, the Pied Piper. Uh, my mother had to uh, sew a, a mouse uh, outfit, and, and it was a big production. We would go uh, on the school bus skating. Uh, we had swimming lessons. Uh, sports day was like a mini Olympics with high jump, long jump, sprinting, uh, field races. Uh, there was always um, activities outside. And I can go on and on. Sports teams were always run by teachers. I'm seeing I have a daughter in grade 10. Wow, what a different experience for her. The sports teams are uh, exclusively run by parents. Um, I don't see any field trips happening. But the one thing that concerns me the most is uh, besides um, the lack of physical education, um, we got a serious... uh, health issue with the kid, with children, um, really a weight problem. But uh, besides that, I don't see any kind of measuring stick for um, uh, outcomes, consistent outcomes for uh, children. Uh, if I, I went into the curriculum um, not so long ago and tried to read it, and I expected to see, like, if uh, a child is in grade four, here's a sample reading of what they should be able to read. There was nothing like that. The uh, curriculum read like a PhD dissertation in philosophy. It was, there was nothing there to grab onto. And I don't know. Now they take the public exams away. It just seems like another um, downward trend. And, you know, add to it, let's just say I'm one of the overachieving students, of which there are many, and I have the opportunity to apply to some of the more prestigious programs and some of the more prestigious schools, which, of course, the competition to get uh, to be enrolled there is pretty heavy. It's pretty intense stuff. So now, all of a sudden, if I'm competing against students from other provinces or other places where they have had this type of measurement used in form of a standardized test, a public exam, where do I fall? 
you know, how do they consider what might be an innovative tool to assess where I am as a grade 12 student in Newfoundland or Labrador versus someone who's gone through a much different uh, a focus on how they exam or they assess or evaluate students. Where do I fall? So are we potentially not only leaving some who really need more preparation time to be able to deal with the much different uh, circumstances of post-secondary or the exceptional students who they want to get into the London School of Economics. They want to get into engineering at Waterloo, right? They want to get into the uh, med school at the U of T. How have we, where have we put them with the lack of these types of tests? I don't know, but I bet you there's implications. Maybe there is. I, I never really thought about that. But what I, what I see, though, is uh, within the school system, my own experience is that um, it's far inferior to what I experienced. And actually, uh, I know you, you receive dozens and dozens of calls a week on the uh, health care crisis. I think we got a big one brewing in the health care system, too. Or, uh, sorry, in the uh, education system, too. Yeah, I know they, there's things you know called averaging where they don't use just simply your transcript for an evaluation. Plus, and I hear people make this argument as well, you know, just being able to regurgitate what I was taught, given a uh, study guide for preparing myself for university, does that mean I actually learned anything? Or would, did I just do enough to be able to regurgitate enough to get through the public and hit whatever the average is required to get into one these days? I can't remember what it is, maybe 65 or 70% as a cumulative uh, score in high school. But, you know, I get it. Maybe your big future is in somewhere in the arts, but you struggle with math. And all of a sudden, because your math score was poor, then you are on the back foot when you move on. I get those concerns. But there's ways to accommodate versus to just knock down the entire system and start from scratch with a new assessment uh, theory or approach. Like I, Maybe the folks who make these, these decisions can help paint the picture. Because maybe it's better, but from where I sit, maybe I'm just too old to understand the new approach to education, but we don't even understand what the approach is they're taking. No exams being, no publics is replaced with, and I don't know the answer to that question, even though I think it's a big one. I don't either, but I was shocked to when my, uh, just experiencing my daughter's, um, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing her uh, schooling, you know, the, the no homework policy. So that really meant no resources were coming home. We couldn't help with uh, worksheets. You know, my my partner, she went and had a friend that was a teacher who hooked us up with some extra stuff because we noticed very early on uh, trouble with reading and spelling and different things. And then we found out that there was no spelling in school anymore. And we found out as we were going along, uh, you know, Remember when we were kids, uh, we used to do the reading uh, in school, wherever you want to take turns uh, reading out loud. Uh, they don't do anything like that anymore. Uh, it's just it's, I, I wonder what's what's happening in the school system. I well, really some of those that. things are just causing anxiety and not getting you anywhere, right? You know, reading proficiency doesn't mean that uh, an insecure child has to go through the trauma of knowing that today's my turn to read a few paragraphs out of uh, Lord of the Rings or something. So, you know, some of those things, I'm not so sure they really were the be-all and end-all. But, you know. Grade two reader? You think kids are experiencing high levels of anxiety in grade one and two, having to read a paragraph from their... Uh, oh, absolutely. Reader? Oh, no question. I mean... There's, the there's absolutely that, no doubt about it. Life, that's the time of life, though, when you have to kind of harden children into uh, to that stuff. I mean, to, you, you, there's certain stressors that everybody has to face in life, and uh, 
reading a few paragraphs in grade one or two, uh, you know, to overcome that fear and be able to do that is, I think, a healthy thing. Well, I know one thing for sure. Even though the world we live in and so much of it is online and, you know, the need to spell has been replaced by autocorrect and the like, being comfortable to speak in front of people is a good leg up in this world. I can tell you that much. I'm off to the break, Jeff, but appreciate the time and the input. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Pam's there in the queue, but i got to check with David. have a few calls behind Pam. When we come back, Pam's got some concerns with law enforcement. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Pam, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay. How about you? I'm doing good, thanks. Um, yeah, this morning I just wanted to chat a little bit about my personal experience. I had spoken with you earlier in, in the year, maybe maybe during the summer, and I had had been talking about you know the the issues within the the RNC that uh, were certainly prevalent with with myself um, as it relates to you know harassment and retaliation for you know just uh, basically trying to obtain basic police services for myself and my young child to face, you know, significant family violence. And I, I, uh, when, when chatting with you, I, I think, uh, minister, um, responsible for the status of women and, uh, equality. She, uh, she had actually returned your call and, and I, I was able to connect with her and we had a, a really great fruit, fruitful conversation. She was going to connect me with the uh, minister of justice, but I, I, I've never, I'd never heard from them. Nothing ever came of it, but, um, I just wanted to kind of update you, like the retaliation, I, I believe it's retaliation, um, that I felt since then from uh, the RNC and and subsequent uh, other services that were connected with them and, and in conversation with them is, is profound. And, and I'd like to tell you about that this morning, if I could. Okay, go ahead. So um, well, what, what had happened, like the, the family violence was still, still occurring, um, you know, and there was an incident in August with my very young child. And um, he was he was actually kidnapped by his father. And, and, and I get a lot of uh, pushback when he used the word kidnap. But I mean, I don't know any other word to describe, you know, with withholding a child, not communicating with the other parent violating a shared parenting agreement uh, and doing so intentionally and willingly uh, with malice and and you know it's simple as not returning calls as well um for an entire week and uh you know at one point i had texted him and said is, is the child okay and he said no he's not so uh, you know once again i had to engage the rnc reluctantly and um you know and they they did a wellness check reluctantly and i was scolded for, for the same but um you know i i I later spotted my child, um, you know, out, out in the community and, and was able to, to connect with him and, and get him on, on what was a court-ordered time for myself. And uh, in, in doing so, you know, the, the father had returned and, and um, you know, family violence ensued. He followed me. His friend followed me. Um, it was, you know, he blocked in my car. He withheld the child's footwear so I couldn't leave. It was, it was really profound. And uh, I just want to note that, you know, uh, when stuff like that happens, I, I have a standard practice, and I think most women should, you know, record record the interaction as as less intrusive as possible when the child is present, for sure. But 
I hit record on my phone, so I recorded the entire event. And, um, you know, I was able to, to, to get to safety. And, and when I got to my car with my child and I, I didn't know where to go because I was being pursued by this guy, he was following me for, for about 10 or 15 minutes. I thought I'd, I'd go to um, the women's shelter there on Watford Bridge Road, Iris Kirby House. I had never been there before, but, you know, I knew I couldn't go anywhere. This guy was in heavy pursuit. So uh, when I when I got there, I thought I was safe. And it was it was probably the worst possible thing I could have done. Uh, the, the outcome of that was, was profound. Um, when I got there, you know, my son had disclosed to staff, uh, you know, that, that he had been abused by his father and he had a mark on his body from it that he showed staff. And, you know, I again, I, we didn't have that time in the car to discuss that, but I was assured the police would come and, and, and help would, would occur. And I, I kind of warned staff. I said, you know, when the, when the police get involved where I'm concerned, they, they you know, the, the bad things happen. And, and I cited a couple of events. But anyway, they called the police, and I, was, I wasn't I was surprised. Uh, when the police arrived, um, they refused to help me. They absolutely refused to help me. Um, I overheard them arguing with one of the staff there who was, you know, probably as shocked as I was still. Um, he said, you know, we're not getting an EPO for this woman. We're not doing it. And uh, there's, there's really no reason for that. There's, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly biased. But what happened after that is, is really bizarre and shocking. And, and it should shock everybody. And I, I, want, I want the general public to, to get involved. And, uh, you know, I, I'd like for people to engage in this stuff because it, it really happens behind closed doors, even when it's happening, happening publicly. And, and I think that, that's a bad thing. We need the media to, to attach themselves to stuff like this because it's, it's really black and white. So, you know, a police officer came and took my statement, and he was arguing with staff. We're not getting an EPO for this woman. Uh, he he had left the Irish Kirby house, and he came back a couple hours later, and um, he he had an EPO for the father. So, uh, you know, and he didn't want my, my my audio evidence. I told him there was video evidence of a nearby location, and they confirmed there was video there. He had no interest in, in the video and audio evidence, and, and to date, they've never saw this. Um, and and what happened is he took my young child, five years old, who had just, again, disclosed child abuse, a father who was, you know, violating a court order and knew he could do so with no consequences because of his political and professional connections, one of them being the RNC. And the police took my five-year-old, walked him out the door, put him in the back of a, well, I should, I should say, two uniformed police officers, took my five-year-old from the Irish Kirby house, put him in the back of a marked police car, yes, with the cages in the back, and drove him back to his abuser. And, uh, you know, that was profound. Of course. So I immediately, you know, appealed this EPO, and it was vacated. When the judge found out, you know, this guy, you know, lied to a police officer, he lied to a judge, he lied to a social worker, you know, all these things, it was immediately vacated. But what happened after that is, and, and this is where the issue gets thicker, you know, CSFD, Child Protection, really jumped on board for this guy. And again, they didn't want the audio or video evidence, didn't seek it out. When it was offered to them, refused. You know, they didn't provide any services for the child thereafter, none whatsoever. To date, it's almost December. And they used that EPO, even though it was vacated, as an opportunity to make an application to family court to get an application for supervision, and, and so be it. But what they did, Patty, they used a supervision order. Um, it was an interim application for supervision is what they asked for because 
you know, they were concerned about the events of that day. And, and again, they made no attempt to clarify those or, or gather evidence, only to, to, to blame, you know, me, the mother. Um, again, with no history. And again, at, prior to this event, there was no protective intervention open on either parent. So this, this event was the driving force. But what they did, you know, they, they utilized that moment as an opportunity. And, and again, you know, the political and professional connections for this guy, and I've spoken to this, you know, in the past on, on open line, you know, are profound, are profound. And it's criminal in nature. So so what they did is, you know, this guy has, has you know, there was a an interim application for supervision, and CSSD actually used it as a removal. And I just want every parent out there who has to do shared parenting with in a volatile situation, and, and maybe it's not as volatile and the family violence isn't as prevalent as me, but I just want you to know that, you know, CSSD are deferring to the father. I've seen my son for two hours since that event, two hours. He was primarily with me most of the time because his father was working in the daytimes and he was with me as I was working from home. But, you know, they used that event to give him custody and power and control, gave my abuser power and control over myself and my son. And they said he is in control of access. If he doesn't feel you're safe, he doesn't have to do it. And he hasn't. I've seen my son for two hours in early September and that was it. And every attempt I've ever made to try and get that court order, you know, the supervised access, oh no, the father's not comfortable with you having access. So and I just want to point out if any if, if women did that, like people who are in shared parenting agreements with, with you know, individuals, if if they said, Oh, I don't don't think you're safe, so I'm not gonna allow you to have access, there'd be so many women in jail. Yeah, I mean it's straight so, up retaliation. I mean it's pretty clear. It's absolute it's absolute retaliation and, and uh, it's it's profound, but I just wanna say that, you know, that young child the trauma and the experiences he's had to date, and, and this particular one in particular, he's had no psychological services despite my outward demands to the department for the same. And the RNC, uh, you know, and what happened after that was even worse. Uh, you know, this, these EPOs that are used, this, this individual got an EPO, that's how, that's how this started, and the, the RNC did this for him. Without the RNC, he would not have been able to do it. And then CSSD jumped on board, and it, it was a pairing of services. So, so what they've done is, that, you know, the, these particular RNC officers and social workers are, are going around, you know, writing in documents that I have mental health issues. They're, they're telling service providers like the school and Eastern Health and, and other individuals, like, that I have mental health issues. And, Patty, I, if I did, I would absolutely say I did, and I don't. And I've had, you know, my son is, is only six, and I've had over six mental health assessments to date because of the harassment from this guy. And I do so openly and willingly. And I just want to point out, I'm a clinician myself. You know, I, I deal with people with mental health issues. And I struggle with the p- thought that both the RNC and CSSD in 2022, they've weaponized the term mental health issues. You know, when you think about, you know, all, all the proactive actions out there to help people, you know, deal who do have mental health issues. They've weaponized it. And and anyone who, who, who has to deal with that, like my heart goes out to them. It really does. But, you know, it, it's horrendous when you live in a province in Canada and this is legally allowed mm-hmm. to happen. Pam, quick question. Where, where do you go when you can't go call the police, Patty? Where do you go when you cannot call the RNC? Uh, I don't where know. You know. It's a pretty you tough know? question. Let me ask you this, though. You, you say that 
I think I heard this properly, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the media needs to, I think you said, latch on to these stories, what have you. I struggle with that because the one thing that we run up against every single time is not only that there's more sides to stories, and I'm not saying you're telling me anything but the absolute truth, but then we run into, when we try to go to organizations, whether it be the department and child youth family services and the child protection division and the law enforcement agencies, the same pushback is always there. It's privacy, 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 or it's before the courts, and so no comment. So what we end up doing is getting disjointed reports about who knows what or who knows where and never getting down to the brass tacks about the actual moving parts and the policymakers or those who are enforcing EPOs, what have you. That's what makes it difficult for me anyway. I don't know about other members of the media, but that's where I run up against it, not knowing exactly what the hell I should be doing. And it's really challenging too. You hit on a good point, especially where children are involved, which most most often they are when this, because you know this is this is what abusers do. They they use children as weapons. Uh, but you know it's I, the way to do this would be as I did. I reached out to the minister for women women and gender equality. She was supposed to connect me with with the minister of justice, and and that never occurred. And you know for 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 me, it's really in policy and procedure, Patty. It's really cut and dry. You know when the RNC appear to a women's shelter and they remove a five year old. Two uniformed police officers put a five-year-old in the back of a police car, you know, who's disclosing child abuse against a parent. It's, you know, against the other parent and then return them to them without any investigation. You don't need to work for certain now to know, listen, there's something criminal happening here. And I just want to point out to you, Patty, where criminal things occur, it becomes public knowledge. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that story. But first, I just want to tell you, you know, where criminal things occur, where there's political and professional interference in a child custody matter, there is a federal law for that. That is a criminal matter. Oh, yes, I know. And you can latch on. Before we wrap up, uh, I'll give you the last word here, Pam, but they're flagging me off. I'm well late for the break, but go ahead and give us yes. your summary statement before we have to say goodbye this morning, unfortunately. I, well, you know, it, my experiences have gotten even more profound. I was I was falsely arrested mid-September and put in jail for five days for no reason at all. Um, I was a victim of crime myself, and, and, and the RNC have pursued me relentlessly. They violated my human rights. And, and you know, I need to know where to go. Women in this province, and it's not just me, like women need to go, need to know where to go when the police are violating their rights and doing so criminally. And, you know, Cert NL might not be it because, you know, they're, I'm sure they're bowed down, but where do you go when this stuff happens? The minister, you know, completely has not called me back. I haven't gotten that meeting. You know, there's there's evidence and stuff that needs to follow. But I just want to say to the general public, like, latch on to this stuff. You know, it's it's not making the news. It needs to make the news. A child should not have to be harmed for to make the news. We as society need to do something. When the police don't follow the rules and do so criminally, there needs to be an avenue. Pam, I appreciate the time. Keep us in the loop. I wish you good luck. And hopefully, Minister Hogan, someone in your office is listening. You'll know exactly who Pam is. I think you owe her a phone call. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, boy, oh boy. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to Central Health to talk about what. Judy will let us know. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Judy, you're on the air. Uh, yeah. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm not sure where to turn this morning. Uh, right now, I'm in Grandpa's Windsor at the hospital. Uh, but my brother in last night is mentally challenged. Uh, we got here at 5.30, and uh, he got a bowel obstruction. Uh, we were here till 1.30 this morning, seeing the doctor. They put him on fluids, uh, no food and no drink, he said, no bed. So they sent us home. 
We left there at 1.15 this morning. She said be back at 7 for a scan. And we've been sitting in the waiting room since 7 o'clock. He's been registered since 7. And this, I just checked. She said, no food, no drink. You just got to wait. It could be hours yet. So I don't know, I don't know where to turn. So it, it, fasting because the next procedure that is going to happen requires that? No. The, the, so what's the, the emergency issue? in Grand Falls is overwhelmed this morning. It, they said the place is crazy. Yeah, I there's mean... There's no bed, there's no bed, there's no... They don't know when he's going to get in. And he's sitting there, not allowed to eat or drink, mentally challenged. And and with bowel obstruction. Like, I don't know, where, where do I turn? Uh, okay, I just want to make sure that I heard you correctly. So... He's being told to fast because there's a bowel obstruction and they don't want to further complicate it or something, or is there something I'm missing? Yes, because there's bowel obstruction, they don't want him to eat or drink because he needs another, he needs a scan. He says, be back here at 7 tomorrow morning. We can register him. We can get a scan done and see what we need to do. Yeah, so for an effective scan, you have to be as empty as possible. Okay, now I get it. Yes. So do, you, do we have any earthly idea when the scan's going to happen? No, we don't. She says you could be hours. You, we, we can't get them, they can't get them in to see a doctor to order the scan. We're just sitting in the waiting room and merge. Yeah. I wouldn't know where to turn, you know, for any immediate uh, solution to be offered. Uh, and nor do I know exactly what's going on in the hospital out there today either. But, you know, when things like this are, you know, can see some investigation or something come because of a, a complaint file at Central Health, that's one thing. But when you have something that's going right now, I wouldn't even know where to point you to try to get some comfort for your brother. You said it was your brother, right, Judy? Yes, he's my brother. He's 67 years old. And he's mentally challenged, and I'm his legal guardian, and uh, he's just been, you know, um, well. And I just bought him in. I took him in Botwood uh, night before last, and they said there's no X-ray machine here, so you have to take the grandfather. But I didn't bring him in right away. I'll wait till the next day, just give him more time, see how he was. But it's uh, like he's not well. His blood pressure was up, which his blood pressure was never up. And he's just like, he's, sick, he's a sick man. And anyway, he had some x-rays last night and blood work and water work and they took water tests and they said that the doctor came in, she said he got a bowel obstruction on the go. So, but there's no bed to leave him here. So we took him home. It, well, they put him on IV fluids, tried to relax his bowel. And then they, well, one one fifteen we left and we went to Bishop Falls to stay all night because it'd be closer to the hospital. And we came back seven this morning and he's just still there waiting. Like, and he's not hooked up to the OIB for fluids. He's not allowed to eat or drink. So I need somebody to step forward and help out there. And it's like the OR, I just went in the OR, checked to see if are they forgetting him. Um, they said no, just like it's still crazier. We just can't get them in. Well, I hope it happens sooner than later. If I had somewhere to point you to get some help for your brother, I'd be more than happy to do it. 
but not knowing the circumstance in the in the hospital at this moment in time, I really don't know what to say other than, you know, at least on an intravenous to keep him hydrated and yes, to potentially ease the blockage in his bowel, that would be a good place to start and hopefully that can happen before the procedure or before the scan takes place. So anything else you'd like to say this morning, Judy, before I wish you well? Uh I just need I just need someone to help us I don't know what else to say well if anyone out there can offer something for you uh, is this a cell phone number for instance that I have here yes my number is 709-290-5350 and you know we just I just need someone to help out here if we can find something for you I'll be sure to call you back myself Judy please take good care good luck Thank you. You're bye-bye. welcome. Bye-bye. Huh. All right. Uh, oh, ouch. Sorry about that. A little yelp, a little crack in my elbow. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Uh, Patty. Yeah. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Good. Uh, I'm calling in with the guy that uh, Peter that called in yesterday. Uh, wow, he, he he was smack on about the Seamus O'Regan and Siobhan Cody about their deep pocket. They're not they're not concerned about uh, the gas prices and the cost of living. I just said to Dave, I just wanted to say one sentence, and that's that's the way I feel. Um, they're deep pockets, and um, they don't worry about the, the grocery going to the grocery store, the supermarket, pay for the groceries, and going to the gas pumps because. Because they're living on taxpayers' dollars, and we were the ones that are suffering. The people that have to uh, uh, fork out the money for the expensive vegetables, and fruits, and and gas pumps, and and uh, paying rent, mortgage, and things like that. So, uh, simple Peter, question. Peter is right on. Uh, Patty, Peter is right on the money. What can government right do? What can government do about any of those things? Well, the I think pro- they should be doing a lot. I mean, they, I think they should be lot, doing a lot. I mean, you're you're talking about people in uh, New Brunswick. And uh, British Columbia. I mean, it's it's just Newfoundland is just an embarrassment as far as I'm concerned. And I've said it before, and I'll, I'll I'll say it again. The people that are are, are just making ends meet, and and for the, a lot of the people that are working, for my jeepers, it's the same thing. Because of trying to get to work and back, and and uh, people are living on one meal a day. Some of them are living on mac and cheese, a craft dinner, and water. And and I'm sure Sean Cody is not living on uh, uh, one meal a day. But it looks first. She's probably having three or four. No offense, but that's the way I feel, Patty. That's all I have to say. I do thank, I do thank you for your show, and you're doing a great job. So you can ask me a question, sure. I, I was, I, I'm always just curious. Look, a people's opinion about one politician, one party, or another is fine yeah. by me. It, it doesn't impact me at all. That's the way I feel. That's the way I feel, and that's the way I feel. And I, that's I, I, fine. That's fine. That doesn't bother me whatsoever. People's opinions, fair. I'm glad they call and share them. But it's no offense to you, Patty. It's no offense to you. I'm just expressing the way I feel about the government. And why are there so many members in government anyway? They're only sitting around uh, checking their their, um, cell phones. I've seen it myself on TV. Sure, they're only sitting there checking to see what their messages are. So I think think some of them should be... uh, some of them should be always out of there, have someone put in there that's doing their job. And that's the way 
feel it. Yeah, okay, just one second. To clarify, none of this offends me. <laughs> I can no, tell I'm you that not, much. No, that, I'm not offending you, Patty. I'm just saying... No, it, it doesn't. Just hold on and listen for a second. I think you're doing a great job, Patty. Yeah, just, but just listen for one second. This doesn't offend yeah. me in the least. Whatever people's opinion is of Seamus O'Regan or Trudeau or anybody else, that's fine. I, I just don't care. What I was going okay. to ask you is, what do we think different levels of government can do, for instance, about groceries? Because the price of the, at the pump and stuff, look, I hear all these stories. If you listen to the show, you know I hear this all day, every day, yeah, and that's I fine. I I but about food, time. that's the biggest concern for me at this moment in time, is just how costly it is to go to the grocery store. So I wonder what can anybody at different government levels, because they're going to strike a parliamentary committee to look at grocery store profits, but I just wonder what you think maybe the province could do about the cost of food, because I struggle to come up with a solution, because when they send out money, of course, that gets criticized. When they don't do anything, that gets criticized. I have to go to the grocery store this afternoon. It's my least favorite thing to do these days, when it used to be something I enjoyed. I just wonder what we should expect. I think they should bring in the universal basic income so that you put your workers. I, I mean, the sad faces that I see at supermarkets would break your friggin' heart. I've been, I've been at a supermarket when I see the lady in front of me, uh, uh, checking her coin purse just to make sure that she had enough to pay in, 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 in coins and, and dollars, you know, not enough to pay her, her groceries. Mm-hmm. It just broke my, it just breaks me in two. That's all I have to say. It's just the new flag government is not doing enough for the people here. That's all. I appreciate the time. Wish you good luck. All right, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, look, if you listen to the show, you know full well that I know how many people out there are struggling, maybe as much as anybody else. My question would be, especially in the grocery store, that's where my, and you hear me talk about food all the time on the show, is where does the solution come from on that front? Like, for instance, with the parliamentary committee, how do they even evaluate what's an acceptable level of profit? You know, because the conversation will extend to windfall taxes, whether it be at the price of the pumps or the price at the grocery store. And I don't know what anyone would deem acceptable level of profit. I'm not sure. And I don't know who has even put forward a suggestion on that front. Is what is going to happen with controlling the prices? You know, is it a matter of government picking winners and losers, subsidizing the quote-unquote healthier option? Like, where where does it lie? So that's the only point I'm putting forward there is, what does anyone think we could or should be doing? I don't know. And like I say, I used to really enjoy it. It's part of my daily routine. Go to the grocery store, buy the stuff for supper. I do the cooking by and large in my home. And now going to the grocery store is one of those kind of cringy moments when I'm thinking, man, how much is this going to cost today? All right, let's keep going. Line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm just calling responding to Pam earlier. Okay. Um, with the uh, child use thing. <sighs> I'm, uh, I didn't hear it. My wife did, and she texted me, and she explained that she was talking about um, different things when it comes to psychiatric um, evaluations and how they use it against you. Um, That agency, I'm not sure, I don't believe they have a civilian overseeing committee uh, in place to watch their actions, but (laughs) as a person that has gone through it, uh, has experienced it for almost 10 years now uh, with no reconnection by them put in place, yet in the very beginning statement, they are about reuniting families, which is a nonsense. This country lets this agency walk all over its people, ruin children's lives across every province, 
kids die in the care of these people. They're put into foster care where those parents or people that are taking care of them have no love for those children, wasn't birthed them, has no care, enjoys money, that's for sure. Just like family members that'll stab you in the back because they'll take any phone call. It could be Joe Schmo on the side of the road, make phone call. And you're accused? Not proven. Not a fact. Not an actual factual thing where an action can be taken for justice or injustice. An accusation. Everybody knows the meaning of that term. Accusation. It's not a truth. It's an idea in some group of mind pointed at you. It's like high school. It's like being bullied by your own government agency that was supposedly put in place to protect you and your children. What kind of nonsense is that? And it goes across this entire country from one end to the other. It doesn't matter what child youth are now they're abusing seniors on top of it. Sorry, let me get the name correct. Child Senior Social Development. What does... Listen to this four of those words. Development. They're jumping in on the person's mental or personal state of living and claiming they know better. That they can control the development of a child, a parent, or a senior. Nobody gave them that right. I didn't. I didn't vote that in at any point. What I voted in was if one of the supposed people within the care of those children are committing some sort of violent or abusive act, a real thing, a factual thing, a thing where there's a bruise on the child's face, there's dirty clothes when they walk into school, things like that. That's what we put them in place for. Not to subjectually create accusation from the babble of probably drunken neighbors and friends and family that don't like you to begin with, that you don't want your children around in the first place. And you're, as the parent, making that call, and then those people call CYFS. Next thing you know, they're at your door. Your life is ruined. You've lost your thing. You're tossed into five or six psychiatrists to take a little ring-a-ding about your brain, and you find out there's absolutely nothing wrong with you except you're freaked out that the government just told you, dragged your kids off to some random ALA where you find out they were abused and the food in the place is disgusting. There's no clothes. There's no in the rooms. There's no toys. There's no bed sheets. You know what I mean? I, I do. These are personal experiences. I'm now blabbering, blabbering out. That's okay. Look, right? the, the emotions so, are real. No kidding. Okay, so... But the abuse know. is more real than the emotion, especially to the person having been abused. And then to find out later on that the kids were abused by the caregiver that was put in place, that was given evaluations by CYFS, and was told that they were perfect for that placement. And then you find out five, six years later that they were abused in that situation and removed. Mm-hmm. Baseless et cetera, allegations. Et cetera, uh, et cetera. Yeah. And not just me, other families, many millions of families in this particular country abused, battered, beaten, had their kids taken, put into care, and then killed by the kid running away and ended up smashed by a car or dead cold in the, in the winter snow, et cetera. All under the protection and guise of child youth and family services across this country. 
Okay. So, uh, for starters, whoever is willing and wanting, whether it be personal grudge or certain level of hate, to make some sort of baseless allegation is completely and utterly disgraceful. And for that to be the basis of removing children and that and that alone simply doesn't make any sense. We found out years ago, there was a story broke that all of a sudden, and I remember the number was 29 children dead in provincial care. And I was like, what is going on here? And through the jigs and the reels, as months went on, we found that 29 was just the starting point. Just the beginning. Not even the scratch of the surface. Not even the surface. That that is, if you think of iceberg, you got the tip of 10%. You might have gotten 1.3% of that when you told 29. There are millions across this country over the years that CYFS has been in place that have been murdered, basically, in the care of these people. Because there's no other putting it. Why would they be in the care to die in the first place if it wasn't? <clears throat> anyway, you were, you were saying. No, I, I'll let you have the last word before I say goodbye. But these stories, they pile up. And as I said to Pam, and I've said many times on the show, there was a while there, to be honest with you, I wasn't even taking these calls because there's no way for me to get to the bottom of anything. Generally speaking, the other side of the story in, involving the, the personal interactions, that person will never talk to me. What? And then I tried to go through the department. It's privacy. <laughs> then we go to law enforcement and it's privacy. Then we go they'll to the minister. Treason. Pardon me? If you mention the children's name or your own name in public, they'll mention you. They'll threaten you with treason. Oh, I'm dead in the water. Two years prison. I'm dead in the water if I do it. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. You so. will be shut down like you were brick wall. Like they got this whole thing to hide. And to be honest with you, I would deserve to be shut down because I could make things much worse for the situation by if I don't have every single detail and all of a sudden I utter the name of a 10-year-old, I may indeed have put that child in jeopardy too. So that's where it makes it extremely difficult for me to try to deal with these matters in any sort of honest, all-encompassing approach. It's just almost impossible. It needs to be an all-encompassing. Every parent that's been done this wrong, because there are parents out there that have, done wrong to a child. Oh, sure. No getting around it. They were put in place for a reason, but there are so many that have just been accusated, not proven, and then you find out later that those children that were taken were never reunited with those parents and were put into a foster care system or a family care system where they ended up being worsely abused than they ever would have in the care of that parent because years go by, 10, 12, 13 years go by, and those kids go reunite with those parents and nothing ever happens. Listen, very quickly, and I do have to go, is uh, obviously you're in a bad place, and I'm not diagnosing you from afar, but do you have someone that you speak to, whether it be professionally or otherwise, to help navigate what is obviously emotional raw waters oh well of course okay but i mean um when you come down to it to have a system that's let right win and put out a broad band concept of what they can accuse and what they can't accuse but this is accusation no factual information no proof i I didn't know our system ran on accusation well, unfortunately, it ran on injustice and 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 the inquiry of the truth is is what I thought this country was pushing forward into its justice system. But when you look at it and you see the broad band of it, it's not anywhere near that. I appreciate the time. I wish you well. Stay in touch. You too. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Let's take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Uh, just a quick comment on the caller that. You know, the prices are out of control and governments aren't doing enough. And there's generally a reference to what the concept of a windfall tax would look like. 
and I'm not entirely sure how that could indeed be imposed or what that might mean for investment in the country, those types of things. I'm not sure. Germany just announced this morning 33% windfall tax on gas companies, oil companies, coal companies. So, you know, it's the same thing with the international cooperation about uh, a set rate inside the G20 for corporate tax. Because that kind of cooperation means that we don't get strong-armed by the big, powerful, profitable companies because there's no running to the third world if you're one of these operations. You need to set up shop inside the G20s for the most part. So those are the kind of conversations that are going to happen. Now, of course, you'll hear roars of communism when that doesn't, that's not what communism means, and roars of socialism, nor is that what socialism means. But things like that are, are down the road, and maybe not that far down the road. Line number three, Daryl, you're on the air. How are you uh, today? Not too bad. You? Oh, good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, I just want uh, brought to my attention here this morning. Their uh, neighbors in need. Uh, they're going to be at Walmart here in Gander today. Now it's from nine to eleven. Now I know it's past eleven a.m. But they're going to be at Walmart uh, today uh, later in the evening from five to eight p.m. And uh, it's brought to my attention, they, and they do do a good cause. There's only somebody, if they could afford to drop off a gift uh, for somebody in need. Always helpful if people have the capacity. And that's where some of these charities and not-for-profits, food banks included, are up against it. Because we all know that there's so many of us want to help. The question that we all ask ourselves is, do I actually have the resources to help as much as I would have in the past? And I think for a lot of folks, it's like, maybe not. But, you know, if you can, because we know, like in my personal circumstances, there's people out there way worse off than I am. So we'll try to do what we can. But give us the details one more time where this group, and what group is it collecting outside of Walmart? as uh, neighbors in need, it's brought to my attention here uh, this morning. They're from 9 to 11 a.m. Now I know it's 11.30, but they're going to be at Walmart later today from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. And it's just basically if anyone could afford it, drop off a gift. So And they just donated somebody in need that uh, they'll give a gift to somebody that is less fortunate than uh, what we are. And so neighbors in need, that's the Facebook group, is it? Uh, yeah, they, they are. Uh, yeah, they are on uh, Facebook. Uh, when I search them myself as well, uh, they're they're Facebook, and I think they're on other ones like Twitter and all that. If I'm not mistaken, I'm not totally uh, sure. But uh, when you just search it from the internet, it comes up as well. You there's lots of ways of uh, getting it. So it was brought to my attention here this morning. So uh, so when I heard about it, I, I decided to call in and share with with uh, people in Newfoundland, Labrador, and uh, and if anybody could afford to do it. Uh, I suggest go for it because there's a lot of people that are in need and and if anyone could afford to do it, uh, you know, fill your boots. (laughs) Thanks for this, Daryl. All right, again, thank you, uh, Patty, and uh, all the best to you and keep up the great work. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, and again, look, I've worked with a lot of these not-for-profits and charities over the years, you know, formally formally and informally. And we speak to them off air a fair bit, just see what's going on and see where we can help and that kind of stuff. They're up against it. Demand is higher than it ever has been before, regardless of what food bank we're talking about in the province. And then even organizations like Food First NL, they had to stop taking calls, requests for emergency food. The callback list was six weeks long. So while we talk about the crisis in healthcare, and that's real, the food insecurity issue is an absolute crisis, but we don't mobilize to deal with food the way we do with Fiona, and we did the right thing. People came together, governments figured it out, 
individual donations or corporate donations, organized labor, they were flown in hand over fist. We mobilize when we talk about healthcare and a comprehensive suite of incentives to try to fill some of the staffing shortages. Don't know what the country really does and or the province really does with this price of groceries and food insecurity. The numbers in the province, even if you just look at the number of children that live in a food insecure household, it's mind-boggling. It's great that we've got the School Lunch Association. It's awesome that we have Kids Eat Smart. But again, when you back out the not-for-profits and the volunteerism in the, in the province, these the governments would never be able to pick up the slack. They just couldn't. They're not equipped for it. They don't have the human resources for it. They probably have the money because money is nothing to the government, right? You know what I mean. So, yeah, the food issue is just absolutely mind-boggling. And one more time. Like, and this is not a question to be asked necessarily of a specific caller. But in the grocery store, what do we think governments could or should do? I don't know. I really just don't know. You know, more self-sufficiency would probably be very, very helpful. And I know this is more of a retail number than an overall all-encompassing number. But producing 10% of what you consume and importing 90 obviously comes with some cost implications. It obviously comes with some quality implications. And could we do more? 100% we could do more. But for, again, the immediacy of the concern, so whether it be, you know, give us an organization, Single Parents Association, and their, I think, what do they call it? The gift of magic or something is, I think, the, the tagline on the program. They've got a big, long laundry list of people waiting to get a Christmas hamper. And we hear it all the time. Coats for kids and block the bus and all the things that people try to do, the VOSIM Cares of the World and other organizations. But the, the demand and the need is just so extraordinary. We are on Twitter. We're VOSIM Open Line. Follow us there. And, of course, we've heard some emotional calls here in the last little bit. Again, the friendly reminder is just because you don't think that your issue or concern or question rises to that threshold of emotion or potential importance, still, it's still worthy of a call. If you want to talk about it, that's exactly what I want to talk about right after this newscast. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, Mark, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you? Okay, how about you? Not too bad. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, wonderful weather we're having. I'm still trying to plant my garlic. Uh, in the end, uh, probably after, I, I'd say Monday or Tuesday, I'll have about 1.6 kilometers of garlic planted every cool. 20 centimeters or so. Um, so all we need is another, uh, you know, five, six, seven, eight thousand farmers doing the same and We'll have our supply probably here in the province. Um, but I, it's not what I what I called you about today. I wanted to just give you a little update on issues of crime, social uh, social programs, and social supports. Um, how they all sort of fit together within our little community here. Uh, on uh, I live on Livingstone Street, Longs Hill, Livingstone, Tessier. Um, and uh, I've been kind of keeping you up to speed on things, but uh, I just wanted to sort of update you because we have received uh, uh, some information from uh, Minister Abbott's office, um, and what they've said is that you know they we may be able to meet with him, um, but they've suggested that it's the responsibility uh, of our 
MHA, who is a great MHA, Jim Din, um, to organize this meeting. And we've asked for a meeting with all the players, basically with Minister Studley, because Minister Studley is, uh, you know, digital government is in charge of the Residential Tenancies Act, Minister Osborne with health, uh, Minister Hogan with public safety. And uh, this is sort of, uh, I guess, uh, following up from my October 11th letter that I really still haven't received much of a response from these ministers about. Um, it's gone to the premier's office, Patty. Like I've written to the premier to say, please, like, you know, I haven't rece- received much of a response here. Can you do something about this? And the premier's office responded by saying, you know, deal with the departments, but the departments aren't really, aren't, aren't really taking a responsibility or a lead for these issues of crime, poverty, food security, like, you know, like the call you just had, um, and social supports to addictions, mental health. Uh, we're hitting an all-time high here, I think. We are. I have friends uh, other than you as well uh, in that region. And, of course, the stories coming from Rabbit Town are getting pretty intense as well. Look, people don't want to hear it. But, you know, a lot of this, you have to believe, is caused by drugs. And the difference between the type of drugs people were addicted to 20, 30 years ago, even if we were talking the cocaines of the world, is extraordinarily different than what people are addicted to today. It just is. The synthetic opioid garbage out there, it turns you into, as my buddy said the other day on the phone, it turns you into an absolute zombie. Any decision-making capacity that you had in years past is gone. And the the numbers of people who are living like that, like my buddy reports, every time he leaves anything in the car and runs in the house to pick up something, it's gone before he gets back out. So if we don't talk about root cause issues, we can talk about social services and police interaction or police presence until the cows come home. But until we wrap our mind around how to deal with the drug crisis in the country, the opioid crisis in the country, we'll be spinning our wheels. So I think there's some sort of safe supply announcement coming here in the country. We know BC has asked for permission to decriminalize some drugs. And if if your immediate go-to reaction is anything like that is enabling drug users, think about this out loud. Let's just say in your neighborhood, all of a sudden there was a safe injection site. And all of a sudden the supply, in addition to offering counseling and treatment, this the supply was safe. And you say you're enabling someone, just think about it out loud. If that happened, would you all of a sudden think that yourself or anyone else you know says, oh, well, you know what? With that in place, maybe I'm going to give heroin a shot. Nothing works like that. Nothing. Same thing when you talk about sex uh, in schools. It doesn't mean people run out behind the school or down by Rennie's River, down to the rock, and all of a sudden experiment. Things just don't work like that. So unless we're willing to talk about why so many people are acting and living like that, then we're kidding ourselves. We just are. We can have a cop on every corner for the rest of eternity. That's not going to stop anyone from being addicted to drugs. Exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, we've dealt extensively with the RNC on these issues. Um, You know, one of the obvious things is to increase the mental health crisis team uh, and to approach it with, you know, with the help of help uh, of these amazing organizations like Thrive who have, you know, who are involved in our neighborhood. But I mean, yes, we can have a cop on every corner and it won't change a thing. Um, What we need is to ensure that there's enough housing for people, that the housing is, is appropriate 
not you know not just throwing people in uh, private dwellings where they can do whatever they want and supporting them. Uh, it's got to be it's got to be wholesome in terms of how we approach these things with our social supports. Um, the mental health and addictions. I mean, here in St. John's, I, I I guarantee this next few months is going to be some of the trickiest that we've ever experienced with addictions, mental health, poverty. Um, so we, we have asked the premier to, to, to do something, to work with these ministers, to, to create an impact, to, to lead the charge here. And now we're being asked that we're being told that our, our, although amazing, uh, MHA Jim Din, but he, you know, he's not a minister. He shouldn't have to organize all of this stuff. I'm sure he can, and he's quite capable. But this this should be coming from government. Government should be addressing these issues and getting on top of it. And you know, we hear like Jim Jim said the other day. You know, no problem spending these exorbitant uh, uh, amounts of money on now core bonuses and things like that. But when it comes to housing, when it comes to appropriate housing, when it comes to social supports that are going to really uh, have an impact on reducing crime in these downtown neighborhoods on George Street. I mean, look at all the stories on Facebook these days. People getting bear sprayed, uh, fights breaking out. Uh, it's it's scary. But, you know, we have, to, we have to provide these social supports, and we need the province to lead, Patty. I don't argue that at all. And, of course, here comes the predictable group that are giving me the social justice warrior tag. I'll take it. Because, look, dealing with drugs is not is not a simple conversation. But the issue about making things safer, if we're talking public safety, then we've got to talk about drugs as well. Because if you don't think that that's going to be the next most appropriate uh, course of action, then you're absolutely kidding yourself and you're willfully forgetting what history has shown us quite clearly. The war on drugs has been trillions of dollars worth of futile nonsense. Nothing changed. It might have gotten worse. So if we can't learn from that lesson, then we can't learn from any lessons. The war on drugs did not work. And if you think that the war on drugs should continue because there's an ounce of feel good, a pound of flesh. Well, it didn't make anybody any safer. It didn't reduce crime. It didn't reduce the number of people using. It didn't reduce the number of people overdosing. It didn't reduce the number of families that were devastated by drug addiction. So why would we continue to do the same thing we know? It's documented to the ends of the earth. It did not work. It does not work. We have to try to change our tune. It's not a criminal matter. It's a health matter. And when we deal with it like a health matter, you actually increase and enhance public safety. So let's just kind of change the words we throw in front of drugs. It's a health concern, number one. Secondly, if we don't deal with that on health front, it doesn't change. Why? Because the war on drugs did not work. Precisely. And as we've, as we've discussed in the past, you know, it's cheaper to deal with it as a social issue than it is a crime issue, than it is a, uh, a, a you know, a tough on crime kind of approach. Uh, be tough on crime. Create the social net, create the social framework to be able to help people before they get to uh, these stages. Or if they're in these stages and they need supports, provide those supports. We can do both. Right? It's not a zero-sum game. It's Both can happen at the same time. One takes time. One has an immediate solution. So while we continue to try to police the streets to keep people safe, that doesn't mean that we just rely on that in full. It means we have to come up with the next uh, a next approach that talks about these things as a health issue as much as it is a criminal justice issue. That's my only point, and I'll let you have the last word. 
Thanks, Patty. Yeah, I, I two points. Like downloading these issues to the city of St. John's is unacceptable. This is a this is a provincial issue that the province needs to get a handle on and lead. Uh, second point is I know there's folks listening out there who are experiencing this, who are you know car break-ins or uh, fights in their neighborhood or just feeling scared. And I, I want to approach this as a as an issue that we can all approach together uh in the city so uh, we will plan something uh i'd love to hear from folks they can find me on facebook or twitter mark wilson and i'd love i've received a few messages but you know i think we need to come together if the province isn't going to lead then we're we are going to have to come together and and you know prove to them that this is an important issue that needs to be dealt with and thanks for your time, uh, No problem. I would suggest that we need a bit more involvement to Health Canada, too, boy, to be honest with you. Uh, appreciate this, Mark. Take good care. Stay in touch. Yes, thanks, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Look, I, I get it. I can see them flowing in through the corner of my eye. And, I mean, if you think you're insulting me by saying social justice warrior, I know how that's taken on a ne- negative connotation. But just try and refute this. The war on drugs didn't work. It does not work. I know how people think it does, but just look at it carefully. Trillions of dollars have been spent. Has anything improved? The answer is clearly no. So unless we take some sort of different approach, then we're just spinning our wheels and we're spending money and getting nowhere. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, line number two. Vic, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and your listening audience. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. I heard your uh, gentleman talking about the uh, school exams, public exams. I think they were talking about discontinuing public examinations. Well, I sort of feel that before they do that, I'm not really in agreement, of course. I think they should look at other provinces or other people that have not uh, or uh, completed their or their uh, system. If they did not complete a uh, public exam, you know, well, probably what was their uh, if, uh, if we have way to evaluate, could evaluate students that never or did not take public exams after they finished high school, as opposed to the students that finished uh, or had public exams. Now I'm aware that public exams, because I'm of course one of the older generation. I may say personally, uh, I think there's no other objective way to assess the student, actually. Uh, and I think probably the best way is the public exam. And uh, I know now uh, we're, well, I'm not quite sure now, but I think we're still behind. Uh, in English, I think, in our high schools now, I think there's some problem there for what I think I read recently. The other thing, I think we're still having problems with uh, First year of math and university at Mon. I don't know about other universities. I don't know why. Oh, it's, it's the, pretty much the same everywhere. And the problems with Math 1010 are not because of the lack of public exams. When I was in university, the pass rate for Math 1010 was well below 50%. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm fully aware of that. The other thing, um, I know this gentleman mentioned, I think, the physical, uh, uh, I guess, sports, etc. And I think public speaking and arts in our high school, maybe they should look at the curriculum, of course, to see uh, how it fares, uh, I guess, with other problems. Uh, well, of course, uh, uh, I think he mentioned public uh, public speaking or reading out loud, etc. Uh, I, I, now, I, I've been, I think I mentioned this before on your program. 
I was disappointed when they discontinued uh, say, uh, learning rote memory, learning, say, t- your tables. Uh, we learned tables in our time. The other thing is uh, they gave up penmanship. I thought I thought penmanship was, uh, you know, I, I was surprised that they gave that up. Penmanship, uh, I, I thought they should actually uh, continue, not, not, have, not have done that. But certainly tables, uh, doing, knowing your tables, I think, would certainly help with math. Yeah, but I mean, there's. It's an interesting point because rote memorization doesn't mean you're any good at math. It just means you were able to memorize your times tables. Uh, it's how you apply the outcomes of eight times eight is how you learn math, not just that you remember it's sixty-four. I suppose, but the, well, the, now what I read, uh, I think uh, they, they're still saying, of course, rote. We we still don't know, I suppose, uh, what the value of rote learning really is. You know, it's not much. Like for instance, there's tricks to taking tests, isn't there? Some people might be good at just knowing what the study guide said, remembering enough based on their cramming in their studies to regurgitate something. If you can regurgitate successfully the next morning in a public exam, does that mean you actually understand the material? Does that mean you could apply? to anything uh, in the real yeah, world? I Probably not. Oh, yes, I see your point. Yes, right. I think that's the reason why I think we need, we, 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 you know, we need some uh, study as to, you know, uh, people that never or do not have the public exam, how they measure up in terms of, you know, uh, in their work environment, etc. So I think that's an area. The other, now, I, I know not to uh, keep you too long, but I, I couldn't help, help uh, thinking, or you mentioned this gentleman was on about uh, uh, drugs, apparently. Uh, 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 my view, and I think I mentioned this before, um, um, it's a, my view, uh, drugs, I think there's very few family families that do not have problems with uh, some addiction in their family pertaining to uh, drugs, etc., uh, and alcohol. But my my view, and it still is, uh, I think it's a health problem. I think the federal government should be uh, the people that's going to try to solve this problem. And uh, one, the first thing they have to do, I think they have to look at the people that are uh, are manufacturing different type of uh, drugs, because and they, they need research as to how to how can you eliminate uh, the addiction from the human body. Now I've been to hospital in several occasions, or you know, and. And I know uh, when they gave me morphine, I, I, I was a wonderful feeling. I said, my gosh, I can appreciate too if I got hooked on this. You know what I mean? Uh, so that was my only experience with with, uh, with, with uh, medications. And I think they told me they could only give me two uh, bits because it was addictive. Uh, other than okay. that, uh, like I say, and I, again, I, I'm very, I mean, I've had experiences, uh, people I've known over years and not that many years ago, uh, that they became addicted. And I couldn't believe it that those people actually uh, became addicted and they were, you know, responsible, educated people who had good uh, employment. Yeah, but literally everyone is prone. <laughs> everyone is prone. Yeah, but this, so, so my view is the research has to be, you know, can we eliminate addiction from the human uh, body or you know what I mean and the people uh, uh, certainly uh, the federal government has to approve those drugs coming on to the market and the people that are, are, are um, the manufacturing and I'm certainly aware now in, in the black market they have their own laboratories now etc chemists yeah. that are working and I know they're very very but until until that's eliminated there'll be always be, we'll always have a trouble with trouble with addictions so that's the only way <coughs> to say but they have the research as to what 
what can we do to keep uh, you know a person from being addicted to a certain drug like I say I can't take you can't be given morphine because I or I can't be given morphine too often because it's addictive that it is that and many other drugs Vic you've had the last word thanks for the call thank you very much Patty. take bye care now. all right bye-bye and that was indeed the last word but we'll pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's open line on behalf of the producer David Williams I'm your host Patty Daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye-bye